I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. talk about cardiogenic shock, Jason. I know this is definitely in your wheelhouse. This is something you're pretty passionate about. And in fact, uh, maybe about a year ago, maybe, yeah, but close to a year ago, you called and we had a conversation and you asked me, what are you teaching your paramedic students to do for cardiogenic shock? Um, what brought that question to mind? Yeah, so we're seeing these uh, patients coming in specifically with STEMIs, but of course, cardiogenic shock can be caused by by non-STEMIs or non-MI type situations. But typically in, in STEMIs, uh, what we're seeing was we're seeing patients that were coming in uh, just completely fluid overloaded um, and uh, just, you know, understanding the pathophysiology of what happens with, with cardiogenic shock and just how devastating fluids are. You know, it occurred to me after teaching for, for so many years and being in EMS for so long, um, you know, we just had this, we have this understanding in emergency medicine that for hypotension, so not necessarily, you know, shock specifically, but for hypotension, the first thing that comes to everybody's mind is fluids mm. is you gotta, yeah, I mean, you gotta fill up the, I forget what they say, fill up the pipes before you squeeze yeah. them or can't or squeeze or dry something like that dry there pipe you go. or something like that. There you go. Yeah. Um, and so working in the world of interventional cardiology now, mm. um, not only seeing that understanding the pathophysiology of that, but actually physically seeing it in patients coming in, mm. um, you know, where in the pre-hospital setting or an emergency setting, getting, uh, you know, a liter, liter and a half. And then by the time they get, uh, you know, to, to get reperfused, reperfusing these patients doesn't even matter really at that point. Right. And, and that's something to, whenever we talk about the delineation of just using a protocol versus actually thinking about what's happening to the patient. Yeah. So this would apply to patients who are potential ROSC patients, you know, when we talk about getting mm-hmm. a pulse back, um, also, like you said, STEMI patients. So how often is it that you see patients come into the cath lab receiving that much fluid? Yeah. So so thankfully for cardiogenic shock, the instance of, of cardiogenic shock is fairly low overall. We're, we're seeing in our system about 11 to 12 percent of STEMI patients that are actually presenting in cardiogenic shock. Now, uh, the problem is uh, really, you know, with, with any kind of shock, you start in this spiral. So anything that starts shock is bad, obviously, and we know that. But anything that fixes shock, whether it's the body doing it or us doing it, anything that's going to treat shock or essentially compensate for shock is going to make you go into shock even more. Right. Which is going to make you try to compensate more. So you just start on this spiral. And um, if they arrive to, you know, essentially definitive care and they're already too far down that spiral, it it just really doesn't matter what care you give anymore. Um, so thankfully, we don't see it often. But when we do see it, it's devastating. Right. And and that's it's, it's incredibly important for EMS educators, for training officers and for practicing per- paramedics. And EMTs. I mean, advanced EMTs, you can initiate IV access. And you know what? Why not? I can give fluids. So if you have that ability, you should be able to know when and when not to use that. And and this is definitely one of those cases to where, like you said a year ago, that we need to find out why people are doing it and we need to 
discourage it. Yeah, but like in anything else, and the whole reason that we we have these conversations is not just to to do what we've done in the past, which is, hey, when you're when you're in cardiogenic shock, don't give fluids. Okay, yeah, whatever you say. But if we truly understand it, um, then I think we can we can better treat our patients. Right. So um, when we talk about the appropriate therapy, so let's say if we have a patient who comes in post MI. Uh, or post arrest, and they have a poor systolic blood pressure. So we're not even, you know, in, in the heat of things, you're not necessarily thinking about a map, but let's say that they have a poor systolic blood pressure and you're thinking about, all right, I got to get the blood pressure up, right? I got to reperfuse. So in that situation, what is the right thing to do? Yeah. So I think first we have to understand what's going on. And I know in, in, in especially in pre-hospital emergency medicine, we, in critical care, we talk a lot about MAP. MAP is important. You know, mean arterial pressure, you have to have at least uh, about 60 or so to perfuse your major organs. So we, we end up giving fluid resuscitation or any kind of resuscitation to um, improve MAP. The problem is when it comes to cardiogenic shock, MAP is only the byproduct of what's actually going on. What we really have to worry about is coronary perfusion pressure, because mm. if you don't have perfusion down your coronary arteries and into your myocardium, you go into cardiac arrest. I mean, that is what causes sudden cardiac death, um, whether it's a STEMI or, or some other problem that is actually preventing or stopping or limiting coronary perfusion and you will go into V-fib. This is why you have refractory V-fib, because you're not perfusing a coronary artery. You can shock it all day long, but if you can't reperfuse that myocardium, it will not be able to, to sustain a pulse. You're either going to never not come back into a, a normal rhythm, or you're going to stay in V-fib. So I think it's important to understand um, coronary perfusion mm. more than even mean arterial pressure. And so to understand that, um, I always like to try to imagine the heart like a sponge. The myocardium is like a sponge. So all arteries fill on systole. As the heart squeezes, blood is ejected out of the left ventricle, perfusing all the arteries of the body. Well, if the heart's in systole like a sponge, if the sponge if, is, if you squeeze a sponge, it cannot fill at that point. So coronary arteries can only fill on diastole. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine your a sponge as it relaxes and completely fills with water, the way that you completely fill the sponge is you allow it to completely relax. What happens in cardiogenic shock is the left ventricle is no longer able to eject the blood out of the left ventricle. So the blood stays in the left ventricle. That blood inside the left ventricle is causing increased pressure inside the left ventricle because it doesn't have anywhere to go, and it's actually squeezing the myocardium from the inside. Well, if it's squeezing the myocardium from the inside on diastole, that's when the coronary arteries are trying to fill. But the pressure inside that ventricle is not allowing them to fill. So the simple calculation for uh, whether of coronary perfusion is we take the di diastolic because that's when when arteries fill, but it has to work against the pressure that's already in the ventricle. So we take the diastolic and we, we have to subtract out the pressure that's in the left ventricle so that we can see coronary perfusion. So if you have a blood pressure of 120 over 80 and on diastole, the pressure inside the ventricle is 10, well, you take the diastole and, and subtract the pressure inside the ventricle. So your coronary perfusion pressure is 70. The problem in car something like cardiogenic shock is you have no cardiac output or limited cardiac output. So now your blood pressure, um, you know, might be, um, you know, 80 over 50. 
Well, that blood isn't isn't being removed from your left ventricle, so that left ventricle is filled with blood and pressure. So now instead of a pressure of 10, it might be as high as 40. So we take the diastolic pressure of 50, subtract 40, now our coronary perfusion pressure is 10. Hmm. And, and that's very crucial, too, because something that we don't discuss all too often is the actual physiology of how the blood will make it through those coronary arteries, because the pressure has to be strong enough to have that aortic rebound, the, the aortic kick in order to, to shove it down into those coronaries. Exactly. And, and that's incredibly important if you don't have enough, not necessarily ejection frame, but if the contractile force is not adequate enough, then that's not going to happen. Right. And, th and this is the problem, is that if you don't have that con uh, that contractile force, you don't eject enough blood, Correct. which means yeah. your pressure goes down, which means your flow down your coronary. So um, it goes down. So everything in cardiogenic shock starts on this downward spiral. So when we're talking about treatment, mm. when we say we have too much blood in our left ventricle, too much volume, and by the way, that is your preload. If you're just going to add fluid to that, mm. well, then you just take that problem and you make it worse a whole lot faster. Absolutely. And at that point, too, where is the blood going to back up? Yeah, it only has one way to back up. It's through <laughs> your mitral valve. And now all of a sudden you got pulmonary edema. So now you, you know, now you have no blood pressure and you can't breathe. Right. So at that point, you're going to be fixing two problems, one of which you potentially caused. Right, right, um, but but not it's not it's not always pulmonary edema. And in fact, if there is a, if there is a little bit of pulmonary edema, um, that's actually releasing the pressure a little bit in your left ventricle. Mm. So almost the wor it's almost just as bad to not have pulmonary edema. Um, you know, you're not you're not having breathing issues, but that pressure is building up inside um, your left ventricle. In fact, really, the only only way you're going to get pulmonary edema is if you blow out a papillary muscle and you have wide open mitral regurg. Mm. Um, but then the other that's a that's another problem because all the blood is not going out to your aorta; it's also going backwards up to your into your mitral valve. And even adding fluid to that can be detrimental. So, let's say that the uh, that the caregiver does not, let's say that they, all right, I understand that I don't want to dump more fluids into this because again, I don't want to take away from the already low contractile force. What would the appropriate thing be to do in this situation? Yeah. So with any kind of shock, you really have three problems. So if we look at uh, essentially the formula for blood pressure, not, you know, blood pressure, pump it up, let it mm -hmm. down, get a systolic, diastolic. <laughs> Uh, when we talk about blood pressure, talk about perfusion, there are three things that go into perfusion. Okay. It's, it's, um, cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance and card to get cardiac output. Um, it's stroke volume times heart rate. Mm -hmm. So anytime you want to affect blood pressure up or down, all you have to do is fix one of those, uh, adjust one of those three things, heart rate, stroke volume, or systemic vascular resistance. Um, so when we look at this with cardiogenic shock, we would say, okay, WTF, let's not do that. Okay, let's let's not give fluids because now all you're doing is taking a heart that's not working and making it work harder. Absolutely. But just think about this. Any treatment that you do is going to cause this to get worse. So cardiogenic shock is mostly caused by acute coronary syndrome or a blockage, you know, mostly a STEMI um, in the coronary artery. So if we're going to increase heart rate, we will get more cardiac output, but at a cost, oxygen demand skyrockets, yep. but we haven't increased the supply. So the size of our MI 
grows and our cardiogenic shock gets worse. If we're going to increase stroke volume with an inotrope, you know, we don't raise the heart rate necessarily, but we increase the contractility of the heart. That's going to come with an extreme cost of a massive amounts of oxygen demand. And you can give all the oxygen you want down right. the lungs. That's not where the problem is. The problem is in the coronary perfusion. So if you can't change that, then increasing stroke volume, and increasing heart rate, you're going to get a very short-lived gain of blood pressure. So something such as dobutamine in that situation. Yeah, exactly. And this is where we've got to change our thinking because in EMS, we're essentially taught unfortunately, to think along the lines of the first 30 minutes, 45 minutes of with the patient. Right. So we get to the patient, to the hospital and their blood pressure is 118, one, you know, 130. And we think we've done well because we gave low doses of dopamine or dobutamine. We've pumped them full of a liter worth of fluid, um, but it's extremely detrimental and that patient likely won't survive. Right. Absolutely. And, and prior to this discussion, I, I, I was thinking about, you know, the question you asked me a year ago, what are you teaching your paramedics? And I said, well, you know what, I wonder, let's look at all the different sources. Let's look at different references and see, is this something that's being taught? Is this something, or is this just EMS culture? Like you said, that unfortunately we just think about the first 20, 30, 45 minutes. And so I dug into a couple of textbooks. I dug into um, one from 2013 that references cardiogenic shock. And I, I love how it says this. Treatment of cardiogenic shock focuses on improving oxygenation and peripheral perfusion without adding to the workload of the heart. So that is, that's, that's good. And then on the same page, the book says... <laughs> If the physician may or the physician may order a trial of fluids to determine whether the shock includes a hypovolemic component. If so, rapidly infuse 100 to 200 milliliters of normal saline. You know, we're doing a we're, we're doing an ACLS for advanced providers class several years ago, and and one of these cases came up with cardiogenic shock, and there was a there was a physician in there um, was not a cardiologist, was a physician, and. Um, we had this discussion of, well, should we, should we challenge, should we do a fluid challenge? And he said, absolutely got to give 500. I said, well, let, let's, because the whole class is based around, let's discuss these things. So I said, well, why would you give fluids? Oh, well, what if they've lost fluids? Let's go. What if they have lost fluids? Um, no, they've been sitting there all night and now they're just, you mm -hmm. know, they're, they're having an MI and they're hypotensive. He said, well, are they diaphoretic? I said, yeah, likely diaphoretic. Well, there you go. That's where they lost all their fluid. Really? I said, you think you can lose, lose 500 cc's? Of, now, I don't know. I've been around some people that probably sweat out, you know, a half easy, a liter of fluid. Easy, easy. Um, but, uh, but no, I don't think that's the right answer. I think if yeah. we say, well, what if they were hypovolemic? Well, yeah, there's a lot of what ifs. Sure. But we have to look at this and say, is it likely that they are volume depleted? Sure. And is 200 or 500 mLs of fluid going to fix that if it is a hypovolemic problem? Yeah, no, I don't think so. So I don't think so. All you're going to do is increase the preload. Yeah, yeah. But where does this, you know, I'll, I'll ask you this, because this may just be anecdotal. And I'm thinking back to um, just teaching, the, you know, EMT school um, several years ago. 
all through all through the texts or or at least the understanding was this 20 milliliters per mm. kilogram gosh like I, the only way, only place I can think that this came from is for pediatrics. Right. That there needs to be a specific amount of fluid. And I think 20 milliliters per kilogram was to limit fluids. Right. But we somehow that got translated into the adult that's, world. Yeah, that's our bolus. Yeah. That, that's our exactly. treatment. Like 2,000 yeah. milliliters for, you know, an average size. You know, of course, everyone in the field weighs 100 kilograms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, math. Sure, um, I sure do. <laughs> <laughs> My right foot. <laughs> But um, we've got this mentality that fluids, even even if fluids are, it's such a, it takes so long yeah. to give that much fluid. And act, if, if that were actually the case, if, if that's what was needed, it's going to take you a long time to get that much fluid in and actually see a change in blood pressure. Absolutely. And, and Jason, I want to ask you about this too. Let's take away the post-MI or post-arrest patient. What about a tachycardic patient? What about a patient who is suffering from... A, a regardless of where the etiology of the dysrhythmia, what if it was way too fast, heart rate of above 200, is dumping fluids into that going to help it? No. In fact, I, I think perhaps the theory there is you have sinus tachycardia because you're compensating mm-hmm. for hypovolemia and that if you can fix that hypovolemia. So in that case, Possibly, but if you've got a fast heart rate, it's yeah. because you have no filling time. Right. It's it has nothing to do with how much fluid is in there. It it's purely a um, you know a filling. Uh, how much time you have to fill your ventricle? If you don't have time to fill your ventricle, you can't get any cardiac output. So Correct. You know, giving more fluids to that is is no um, is of no benefit. You know, this actually reminds me of. Um, uh, I, I've read some, probably recently, some EMS reports or heard some people say, um, well, I dumped a bunch of fluid in there because I had to give nitro. And so the pressure was about 98. I had to have it 100. So I dumped a bunch of fluid in there, got it up to 110, gave nitro, and then it dropped to 80. Like, okay. So it reminded me, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big MASH fan. Good. Um, it reminded me of uh, of an of an episode where uh, they brought a uh, prisoner of war by to have the doctors fix him up, uh, save his life, so they could take him to the firing squad. <laughs> like, okay, well, let's pump somebody up with fluid so we can give them something that's going to be detrimental to them, just because we have this mindset that it is nitroglycerin that saves that saves lives, rather than recognizing uh, this patient was in shock yeah. and. We, we shouldn't have done any. It's just some backwards thinking, not even backwards thinking. I think just some incorrect thinking because for so long in EMS, we've been told this is what you do. Right. Without a lot of background to defend it. Yeah. Instead of looking at, look, there are three causes of this, hy- of this hypotension, vessel, volume, or pump. And what's happening? What, what is this situation? Is it, is, if it's a pump problem, it's either an inadequate pump from post-MI, post-arrest, or it's too fast or it's too slow. Absolutely. Dumping, it's not a volume problem. No. It's dumping fluid into that is not going to fix it. Um, So, and again, back to your sponge example, and I don't want to steal this. I steal this every time I teach tachycardia, but I want you to talk about how the, the sponge method or the sponge theory in tachycardia. Yeah. Well, think about if you, if you have uh, two buckets, you got a bucket of water and you got an empty bucket. You want to fill the empty bucket with the bucket of water using a sponge. Well, to get the most effective 
amount of volume is you're going to squeeze the sponge completely. You're going to set it in the water. You're going to give it, you're going to completely relax it, take all the pressure off the sponge to allow it to fill completely. Then you're going to squeeze it all the way to make sure you get all of the water out of that sponge. And then you're going to repeat that process. If you go outside of that process on anything, if you don't squeeze it enough, if you don't allow it to relax enough, you don't fill it enough. And then if you try to move too fast, if it takes you five seconds to fill that sponge, yet you think you need to transfer that sponge once, you know, every second, mm -hmm. well, you're going to get a very limited amount of water inside that sponge. Same thing with your heart. If you're going to be, t if you want it to be tachycardic, well, then you are going to lose the filling time. If you are too slow, you're going to lose the filling time because you're just not producing enough for the demand. Yeah. And that fluid's going to go somewhere. Absolutely. It's going to yeah. go somewhere. And that's, I love whenever the light bulb pops off, whenever I, I steal that from you and I'm like, yeah, turn on a sink and try to fill squeeze a sponge 200 times a minute and see if it ever fills. Yeah. Never does. Yeah. No, it doesn't have time. I mean, the time is important, you know, so this is why even going back to, you know, we do CPR, chest compressions, mm. the 100 or 120, I think is probably the best is important. Faster is not better. You have to give the heart time to fill. And in fact, that's going back to the Starling law. That was, you know, after a PVC, it's a compensatory pause. It's sure. pausing because it has the, it's compensating for the low blood pressure the, of the PVC. So it's actually pausing so that the ventricle can have more time to fill and fill even at a greater volume to mm. compensate for that um, lower perfusion beat. So which presser have you found to be the most beneficial in this situation? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because for years we've only carried dopamine. Um, you know, we tried vasopressin and cardiac arrest that turned out to be like every drug in cardiac arrest, <laughs> insignificant, useless, useless, completely <laughs> useless. Um, vasopressin is actually a great drug, uh, for, um, for a presser, but it's, it's a difficult drug to mix. It's a difficult drug to get. So actually there was a, there was a trial, um, that was done. It's called the soap trial. So S O A P there's soap one and soap two. So it, it showed very clearly that, um, alpha agents or mostly alpha agents to get systemic vascular, increased systemic vascular resistance only without increasing heart rate or stroke volume by far was superior to an uh, onotrope or a chronotrope. Mm. Good. Um, so it, and it, it shows too that not only do we, if we have a patient in shock, we don't need to sneak up on it. I mean, there's no... You know, like if, if there's, you know, if there's somebody robbing your house and you see them, you know, you, you don't want to just sneak up on them. You want to just hit them with everything you got, mm -hmm. you know, and just beat the crap out of them. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to like, uh, okay, can we you know, maybe talk this through? You want a cup of coffee? And, yeah. It's just, want some coffee? You know, maybe this doesn't have to happen. And what's going to happen? It's all, it's going to turn out badly. It's uh, you go up, you, you know, you smack them with everything you got. That's and that's right. what we need to do um, with this. Uh, and so it clear the, those, those trials, those, that study clearly showed in all forms of shock other than hypovolemic shock, cause that is obviously, obviously a, a volume problem. Those showed clearly, um, with uh, cardiogenic and septic shock that a presser agent solely without the positive inotrope or chronotrope is, is superior. However, you're still doing it at a cost because as you raise systemic vascular resistance, you raise afterload. 
Right. And as you increase afterload, you increase the workload of the heart. So while it's still not a perfect fix, it is the one that's going to cause the heart to work uh, as, as least as possible. Good. Good. At this point, what what have you found about LevaFed as a presser? Yeah, so so LevaFed is by far the best. Norepinephrine is the best one, and we really need to start in the neighborhood of probably ten or twelve. If we have patients that are in shock, now the other thing that I think we've learned is, um, well, you know, and, and people probably listen and going, oh yeah, you said LevaFed. It's leave them dead. You mm-hmm. pronounced it wrong, mm-hmm. um, and so. The reason people say leave them dead is because they're exactly right. In the past, when we've given Levafed, it was because they were dead. And it's because we started it too late. Yeah. Because we waited until the house was on fire yeah. to put water on it. Mm. You know, at one point, the, the trash can was on fire. Yeah. And we decided, mm, it's not time yet. And then the drapes were on fire. <laughs> mm, still not time. I think we'll wait till the house is fully on fire for mm-hmm. us to do anything. And then by then you know, it's, it's too late. So, um, we, we need to really get ahead of cardiogenic shock. And when we give Levafed, if, if, uh, we start at low doses, when they need it, we keep them out of these later stages of shock. But if they are in full blown cardiogenic shock, we need to get ahead of this. And in fact, sometimes in the hospital, we're giving Levafed wide open, um, and then moving to things like epinephrine or vasopressin if needed. But in the field, I think Levafed is showing um, great results. Uh, there are many in our area that are using it post-arrest, mm. almost prophylactically. Yeah. Um, and it's just starting out at low doses. And then if they need more, they can bump it up. But the SOAP and SOAP2 trial clearly showed that norepinephrine was superior. Now, if you don't have norepinephrine and you only have dopamine, remember, dopamine is like a dial a drug at the mm-hmm. lower doses. It's mostly beta, like, uh, you know, like a dobutamine. And as we move more towards a 10, it starts to switch from, you know, most from uh, about the same beta to alpha. And then as we're in the 15 to 20, but we've also, I think, incorrectly taught students to fear dopamine at the high levels. And we start right. to say things like, well, if you're at 20, you're shutting off the kidneys and they're going to die anyway. There's, there's just no data that, no. that shows that. Correct. Correct. So at, at that point too, I want to bring up how our pressors are packaged. So for those people who just, you just got to give some fluids, every ounce of your, your body wants to give fluids in this situation because yeah. the pressure's too low. Well, here you go. Say, great. Give some fluids. Yeah. Just put, mix it with some levofed or dopamine. Exactly. Exactly. So the protocol that you proposed and, and that has been initiated where we are, um, Typically, the concentrations of either levofed or dopamine, you're going to be administering 250 to max 500, depending on how those how those uh, pressors are packaged. So, what what is the protocol? Do you mind discussing that um, in reference to cardiogenic shock? Yeah. So the the, the protocol we actually um, just really give three suggestions. Um, one is dopamine. One is levofed, and then actually we've gotten some really good results with push dose epi. Um, especially when, uh, you know, levofed isn't available. Mm. Uh, you know, when you're talking about drips and everything, and this is, this is a lot of people, a lot of things people in hospitals don't understand. Like, well, I mean, just starting a drip is easy. You put it in there, take your pump, program it, put the, <laughs> put the kilograms in there. And then it shows, you know, I don't know, you know, 37.63 drops a minute, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I mean, how hard can that be? Like, 
yeah, we don't have pumps. So, you, right. you know, we're counting and we're, you know, we're doing drips. So I think push yeah. dose, dose epi is a, is another, you know, a viable option when you're giving in, in, uh, in mics versus milligrams. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so essentially Levafed, most of it's pre, a lot of it, or a lot of it is pre-mixed mm-hmm. um, in 16 mics. But, you know, we can, you can give uh, four milligrams in 250, or you can, you know, you can give, you can do the dopamine at 1600 mics. Um, but uh, really, we, we want to start where the patient needs it. So you if go. you're sitting, you know, you're, you're in their neighborhood of 100, you know, 90 to 100, and you think, ah, I just want to really keep them at a full-blown shock, you know, starting at 2 to 4 is, is great, is a great option. But if you're in full-blown shock, 10, I'd say, you know, you really got to start at 10 to 12. We really got to be ahead Levo of fed. this at LevaFed, yeah. yeah. Um, and we, we can't be afraid of it. Right. Here's here's the thing. This patient's going to die. You're not going to make that situation worse. But we shouldn't just be doing this without the evidence or without being able to uh, to support this. Because you're gonna you're gonna have some medics that are going to go into some emergency departments. They're going to be like, you, you what you did? What mm-hmm. are you kidding me? And it's only because they don't know. Right. So do you mind discussing the different classifications like we were talking about earlier? Yeah. So this is the most exciting thing to come along in cardiogenic shock. Since the recognition mm. or sliced bread, one of the other two. I'm not sure we had. I like bread a lot. Bread. I really like bread a lot. That's a that's a stretch. <laughs> so so here's how we've treated cardiogenic shock. Where do we say this is a shock? There's no one thing that says this patient is in shock. Unfortunately, by the time we say the patient is in shock, we're too far gone. You know, we 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 teach forever. Like, do not treat off mm-hmm. blood pressure. Right. Right. Because blood pressure is the last thing to go. So our patient is tachycardic. They're obviously compensating for something um, altered mental status and just the just the high index of suspicion that they're in shock. Well, taking them to a different to to one hospital, you might get a doctor who says, oh, no, they're not in shock. You might get a cardiologist say, no, they are in shock. You might get another cardiologist says, no, they're not in shock yet, because the official definition of shock is a blood pressure of less than 90 for at least 30 minutes. Mm. Mm. So that's great. So if we say, hey, we're going to treat shock, uh, let's take a blood pressure. It's 82. Okay. Take another one in 29 minutes and tell me what that is. <laughs> Regardless like, of their lactate. Yeah, no, no, no. We just got to determine <laughs> if they're in shock because the definition of shock is less than 90 for 30 minutes. Yeah. Like who, nobody does that. That's that's ridiculous. So, um, yeah, so we can check things like lactate, but, but in the field, we don't, right. you know, we don't have that, but what do we do about before a lactate happens? So, um, you know, they use the example of the airline industry and they, they call this, um, you know, they have, uh, a thing called lingua franca, which is Frank language, which is, we all have to be on the same page. So for instance, in the airline industry, if you're an, if you're a pilot anywhere in the world, you have to speak English. Because if you go into an airport and you need to speak to the control tower, you, regardless of where you are, mm-hmm. you can speak English and they have to respond to you in English. Wow. Because it's so important for us to be, you know, it's, for safety, it's so important for us to be on the same page. English is the common language. We don't have that in cardiogenic shock. So if you say, oh, I'm going to treat this as cardiogenic shock. Well, it's not officially cardiogenic shock because it doesn't meet whatever criteria. Like, so, so we've got to get past that. So to, a group got together. So there's a group called um, 
SCAI or SKY, Society for Cardiac Angiography and Interventions. Uh, so essentially, it is the industry um, group for interventional cardiologists. Guy by the name of Dr. David Barron, in conjunction with many people, including um, Tim Henry, uh, who is an interventional cardiologist, and then uh, one of probably the mo the foremost authority on STEMI and cardiogenic shock, Dr. Cindy Grines. Um, and then the other name that some people, you may not know this name, but you have read a bunch of his stuff, Dr. Joe Ornato. And if you want to know who that is, just open the front page of an ACLS book since probably about the year 2000. You'll see his name all over this. He's actually mm -hmm. board certified in cardiology and emergency medicine and has done extensive research on, on cardiac arrest and, mm -hmm. and STEMI. So anyway, these, these people and then uh, even a much larger group got together to figure out how do we classify the shock? How can we, you know, right now it's very binary. It's either they're in shock or they're not in shock. How can we figure out these stages um, and all get on the same page? So they came up with these stages A through E. So A, B, C, D, E. Very, uh, A is at risk. B is the beginnings. C is classic. Um, D is deteriorating. And E is extremis. So they looked at this and they said, well, what if we could identify where these people are in this stage and how do we treat them? So we have to start thinking of cardiogenic shock specifically as its own unique condition that needs its own unique therapies. That's good. Um, for the life of me, I can't figure out uh, why people would say, well, Okay, so uh, EMS had this STEMI patient, um, and they have a, a center that can treat shock, but they're about uh, 30 miles away, and there's two hospitals before before there. Maybe there's one in my, in my service area, um, but these guys, man, this guy's really, really sick. So I'm going to take him to the local hospital to stabilize them. Hmm. Like, what do you mean st stabilize? <laughs> there is a very specific treatment for cardiogenic shock, and it can only be done at a place that can treat cardiogenic shock. Right. We don't do this for trauma. We don't do this for stroke. We don't, we don't say a patient's having a stroke, but we're going to go to a hospital that doesn't have a CT scan and TPA so we can stabilize them. <laughs> you know, we don't do that anywhere else, but we do this, uh, you know, we do this with cardiology. So it's very specific how we treat, how we treat this patient. So can we identify where this patient is and what their needs are going to be? So very quickly, the at risk is just, I got a high index of suspicion. Maybe this patient had a STEMI. Maybe they have something that says they're very likely to be in cardiogenic shock. Their blood pressure is normal. Their heart rate's normal. Um, they're really not showing any signs of shock, but we just got a really high uh, uh, index of suspicion. So the beginnings is, okay, now maybe the heart rate's starting to go up, blood pressure's starting to drop a little bit. Classic is, yeah, we're all saying this is really cardiogenic shock, mm -hmm. but they're really not sick, sick yet. Deteriorating is they're, they're going downhill fast. They're about halfway down this death spiral. Extremis is call the chaplain. Yeah. They likely are not going to survive. Let them talk to their family if they're still conscious. Because um, one of the ways that uh, this group um, and Dr. Barron describes this, um, and for a simple-minded person like me, this makes complete sense. So A is like a book of matches. Um, well, I don't know. Maybe some people don't know what a book of matches, a, match, <laughs> a matchbook is. I used to get them at restaurants and 
anyway. Yeah. They're a book with matches. Yeah. I mean, it's all in the name. <laughs> so there's no problem there, but, but the potential is there. So B is the match is lit. Okay, now we've obviously started, we've obviously progressed, but there's no danger yet. Um, C is the trash cans on fire. Like, well, if we could put this thing out now, we'd save, we would save the day. D is the curtains are on fire. Now we've probably not going to be able to take care of this with standard means. We're going to need, um, we're going to need some specialized stuff. E is extremist. The house is fully involved. What good are you going to do at that point? Surround and drown. So, <laughs> yeah, WTF. <laughs> right. So, yeah, maybe with the fire department, the fluids make sense. <laughs> So really, what, what can we do to make sure that we can identify this? Because actually, um, Journal American College of Cardiology, just I think about two weeks ago, just published something. They actually took these classifications um, at a couple ICUs and looked back over, I think, about 10,000 patients. And they classified all these patients in one of these five classifications. And this is what they found. Survival rate at A, and I know somebody's going to fact check me on this. I'm doing this from memory, so forgive me. <laughs> if you're in the A, the at risk, your, your mortality rate is about 4%. Mm. As you move to B, your mortality goes to 8%-ish. At C, you're at 12%. But once you hit D or deteriorating, you jump to nearly 50%. Mm. And once you're in E, 80% mortality. So it's a sharp curve. Absolutely. And the problem becomes, when do we give Levafed? Yeah. We're giving it in the D or the E. Oh, so every man. time we give Levafed, now what's it called? Leave them dead. Right. It's because we're showing up to that house fire with our garden hose saying, mm -hmm. well, I don't know why. I have water. Mm -hmm. I have a hose. I don't know why the fire's not going out. I don't know why the house burned to the ground. It's because you could have you put that fire out um, while it was in the trash can. Awesome. So here's where I think, and this is what I'm excited about. This is how EMS makes a difference. When EMS can identify a patient in that A, B, or C and can get that patient to the right place, lives will be saved. Absolutely. If we take the patient to the wrong place, if we end up giving a bunch of fluids, if we treat this patient incorrectly, then they go to D or E and there's no amount of uh, equipment or therapies that can be done in the hospital with any level of physician that's going to matter. Right. Right. So I, I think I want to close with this, Jason. Would you mind talking about briefly talking about the the bill that was passed in the state of Georgia last year that you had a that you had a pretty significant part in getting passed and how that would affect the patients that we're talking about right now. Yeah. So, so, so quickly that's uh, we, we kind of take it from the trauma system model is that we have a level one, level two, level three, and I think even a, what a four or five, um, community. Uh, yeah, yeah. community, but, but really like a level one, <laughs> level two, level threes, those are the ones that, um, that can make a difference. That not everyone needs a level one, not everyone needs a level two, but for those that do, here's what was happening before trauma systems. EMS would take the patient to a local hospital. That patient would sit there 
in hemorrhagic shock with a closed head injury, trying to figure out how do we get that patient to a level one. Though when this changed was when we started to do true trauma systems and we empowered EMS to assess, begin treatment, and bypass hospitals to get them to the most appropriate hospital. Well, that works great for trauma, but we no one has that really for cardiac. So we um, looked at what if, how would this work for cardiac? So we want to be able to empower EMS to take people to where patients where they need to go. But on the flip side of that, we want to make sure hospitals are held accountable for certain therapies, certain levels of education, providing education, providing feedback. So um, in the bill, uh, it is written that if you want to be a level one, these are the therapies you have to have. And one of those is the ability to treat cardiogenic shock. Perfect. So for instance, um, when we talk about, uh, you know, the problem with cardiogenic shock is too much fluid in the left ventricle. Well, there's a device that takes the fluid out of the ventricle. Mm -hmm. It's a percutaneous LVAD. So to be a level one, and we, uh, you have to have a percutaneous LVAD. And so we know with a percutaneous LVAD, your survival of, car of cardiogenic shock goes up uh, quite a bit. And so we're seeing in some areas uh, pat pa patients that are treated at cardiogenic shock centers, now their mortality can go as low as 20%. Mm. So from 50 or 60% down to 20%. But it's not just that therapy. It's getting the patient to that therapy. And so I think really when we talk about where is EMS going to make a difference, I really think we are going to see uh, the survival of cardiogenic shock go up now that EMS is empowered to do this. Very cool. Well, Jason, I appreciate you sharing your, your heart, no pun intended, with cardiology today. That was good. It's a good discussion. Thanks. You've been listening to Medic Class Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.